Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On the second Monday in October, many cities and states celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, which replaces the federally recognized but controversial Columbus Day holiday. Indigenous Peoples Day has been officially recognized in North Carolina since 2017, when Governor Cooper issued a proclamation declaring the second Monday in October as Indigenous Peoples Day in the state. He has issued a proclamation every year. As noted in the governor's proclamations, North Carolina is home to more than 122,000 American Indians and has eight historic tribes. The proclamations recognize that American Indians inhabited this continent long before the arrival of European settlers and that we should honor and respect the heritage and the many cultural and economic contributions of the Native American tribes in North Carolina. The proclamations also acknowledge the inequity of the treatment of Native peoples and the historic destruction of our indigenous cultures. During this evening's show, we're going to talk about the rich cultural history of Native Americans in the state of North Carolina and the issues facing their communities. Joining us for this discussion is attorney Joshua Malcolm, who is the president and CEO of the Lumbee Tribe Holding Incorporated Company. Attorney Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, pleased to be here. So we're going to start by asking you to share a little bit of your background with us. And in doing so, if you could share your tribal affiliation. Sure. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you all this evening. I think it's great um, that you have set aside some time to, to talk about some pretty Pretty important things, especially considering where we are in this in this country's evolution and, and the topics of discussion that are filling the airways and the news media. I'm Joshua Malcolm. I'm Lumbee, uh, uh, an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, which um, our tribal territory is in the southeastern part of North Carolina, uh, made up of a four-county region, including Hoke, Scotland, Robertson, and Cum- Cumberland. Um, I, I've lived here my entire life um, by the grace of God, other than the seven years I served in, in, in our United States Air Force. I come from a family that has nine kids. Um, four of us served uh, in the military. We, four of us became commissioned officers. We think we may have the record for the most commissioned officers from the same um, university. All four of us were commissioned um, as a result of our graduation from what's now called UNC Pembroke, Pembroke State University. Um, my mother has made names a lot clearer. Um, my grandfather um, was the first mayor of Pembroke in 1948. Prior to that time, 
our people were not considered capable enough to run their own affairs. And the folks up in Raleigh appointed an administrator to oversee the town of Pembroke. Um, I, I, I've referenced that because that's sort of the foundation of, of who I am. My mother, by the grace of God, who's still with me, she'll be 87 next month, reminded us, and as I grew up, um, reminded us of her challenges, the challenges of our community. And I'm attempting to pass those along to my kids now, who range from as young as eight to as old as, old as 25. I'm a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. I was thinking earlier today um, how I made the journey to uh, Central School of Law and how I was given an unbelievable opportunity to go into to the field of law after serving in the Air Force. I'm happy to be here to talk about the Lumbee uh, to the extent that I can share our history and, and our proud people. Now, you mentioned your journey to law school. Can you share what prompted you to have an interest in law and, and wanting to go to law school? And why did you choose NCCU Law? Sure. Um, the truth of the matter is that there were no lawyers in my family. You know, I didn't grow up wanting to be a lawyer. I didn't. Um, strive to be a lawyer. I went to, I went to, as I mentioned earlier, I went to Pembroke State University. My mom um, was an educator. She taught in the public schools almost 30 years, reading and music. And, you know, much like a lot of uh, families, not just here, but across the state, you know, you had one of, a, one of three options. You either went to college, you joined the military, um, or you went to work or you got out. And so uh, it was pretty easy for, for me to end up at Pembroke State. Um, shortly, shortly after, though, uh, I mentioned earlier, two of my older siblings um, had commissioned through Army ROTC. I watched them, but more importantly, uh, as a boy, I remember my dad, um, he retired when I was around six or seven years old. He was an enlisted man in the, in the Army. Um, he served in the Army for over 25, 25 years without a high school degree. And when he got out, he came back to Robinson County and got his GED from Robinson Community College. And I worked, I watched him as a simple man, um, put me to the local Piggly Wiggly until he got a job as a custodian at the local community college, Robinson Community College. And it's amazing to think today that I'm counsel for Robinson Community College. Um, years and years later. Um, but while I was at UNC Pembroke, as it's referred to now, I knew I wanted to do something <clears throat> related to the military, and I, I decided to join the Air Force ROTC program. I excelled at that, did real well, and there's nothing like a little kid from southeastern North Carolina. The federal government comes to you and says, um, you have the attributes to fly airplanes. And I thought to myself, what in the world? Who are <laughs> To be sure, something's gotten mixed up, um, but that's what happened, and I was selected to go to flight school. Um, I did. Um, I flew C-130s primarily out of, out of Texas, Abilene, Texas, but I spent two weeks a month sitting on the Green Ramp at Pope, ironically, um, during most of that time and served our country for, for about seven years. It was not my intention to get out of the military. Unfortunately, while I was on active duty, I was deployed around the world, including the Middle East. This was post um, Desert Storm. 
And unfortunately, I was uh, diagnosed with a service-connected disability. It brought my flying career and eventually my military career to an end. And the truth of the matter is, when I came home, uh, I had a I had a, a pity party for myself, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, because since the time I was 19, I'd put in all my effort and energy into becoming the best military officer I could, and I had achieved that. Only, only to um, have to accept that my body had failed me. And so during that process of coming home, reevaluating what I was going to do, what career I was going to go into, I, I remembered I had a neighbor across the street. Ironically, just this past week, his dad's name's been all over the nation's news uh, because his dad's name was Sam Oxendine. Sam Oxendine was a, a gunner on uh, World War II. And he had a son named Rodney, Rodney Oxendine, who, while I was gone, um, Rodney's probably 20 years older than me, played in a rock band when I was a young man. Um, but while I was gone, he morphed and became became an attorney. And I went to see Rodney at the Robson County Courthouse. And while I was waiting for him, I stumbled into Superior Court, room 2A, which is on the second floor of Robson County, sat on the back row not knowing really what was happening. Um, but I watched as the judge came in and everyone stood and the judge called things to order. And I watched as uh, the judge called on the two parties, the state and the defense counsel. And one of the folks that he called on was John Wisher. And I saw this elderly man slowly rise to his feet, um, clearly with physical problems. And I heard him utter a few sentences as clear as a clarion trumpet. And I watched the judge's face and expressions, and I watched him turn to the state and say, what say the state? And lickety-split, um, the matter was disposed of. And I, I, I didn't recognize it at the time, but later I did. And what I recognized was, as long as you have a strong mind, you can work around your body failing you. And that's the truth of the matter is, and speaking with Rodney Oxendine, Mr. Henry Ward Oxendine, who was an NCCU graduate, the first American Indian to serve in the General Assembly, and Mr. Arnold Locklear, those three gentlemen are the three that I spoke to about becoming a lawyer. All three graduated from Central. And, it, and, and that's part of the reason I went to Central. Of course, I was married with two young kids I was the only one working full time, and I applied. Uh, I took the LSAT without telling my wife. I applied to law school without telling my wife. And I remember coming home um, in the summer and telling her that I was going to um, be going back to school. She said, "What? What are you talking about? I said, I'm going to go to law school." She said, "Where?" I said, "Durham." She said, "You're going to Duke?" I said, "No." I said, "I'm going to North Carolina Central." And she said, they have a part-time law program? I said, they do. And at that time, to the best of my recollection, it's the only part-time law program between Virginia Beach and Atlanta. And she said, how are you going to live in Pembroke, work in Lawnburg at the plant, and go to law school part-time? I said, I'm not. I said, I'm quitting my job in Scotland County in Lawnburg. I'm moving to Durham. You're staying here with the two kids. We're going on public assistance. And I'm going to live with my brother. And I'm going to school full-time, not part-time. And I did that. I borrowed the maximum amount. I paid my mortgage. And we were. I've not really spoken of that publicly, but we were for the first year. We were on 
Uh, my kids were on public assistance. Uh, I paid Cobra health premiums for me and my wife. And that next summer, my wife got hired full-time with a company called Limited Brands, which, which owns Bath and Body Works. Um, and to this day, she's still working for them. So that's how I ended up at Central. Um, ended up in Professor Joyner's classroom. I remember he was the first professor that talked about Robinson County. Um, he, I remember the stories he told about representing or assisting on issues in Robinson County, and that really stuck with me. And I'm so pleased to be speaking with you and him this evening about about Robinson County and about my experience uh, at Central. All right. This is uh, the Legal Eagle Review. We're talking with uh, Attorney uh, Joshua Malcolm, uh, who is the uh, president and CEO of the uh, Lumbee Tribe holding down in uh, uh, Robeson uh, County. Uh, that's down the road a piece uh, from here. But uh, Attorney Malcolm is a, a proud graduate of the uh, NCCU School of Law. And we're very proud of all of the things that he has uh, done. And uh, we're talking to him uh, about uh, Indigenous uh, People's Day. Uh, and uh, some of uh, his experience and uh, the implications of uh, this day and this morphing from what was formerly called uh, Columbus Day. Uh, we're going to have to take our break right now. And I uh, want you to, uh, to stay with us as, uh, as we continue this conversation with, uh, with Attorney Malcolm. So uh, we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your community event spotlight. Are you looking for something to do in Durham? Check out the Civil Rights Legacy Downtown Durham Walking Tour. This event is held every third Saturday at 10 a.m. from now until November 20th. The tour is a great way to learn about the rich history of African Americans in the city of Durham. You can find more details about this event and register at discoverdurham.com slash events. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. Thank you. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, where we are talking with attorney Joshua Malcolm, about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Attorney Malcolm, uh, a graduate of uh, North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law, is president and uh, CEO of the uh, Lumbee Tribe Holdings Incorporation down uh, in uh, in Robeson uh, County. And he started us all by giving us uh, an outstanding background uh, with respect to uh, his growth and uh, development and how he ended up at North Carolina Central uh, Law School. But I uh, wanted to start us off uh, by talking about uh, military service. Uh, Attorney Malcolm indicated that he went into uh, the Air Force and became a pilot uh, while there. Uh, can you kind of talk about uh, uh, the uh, importance uh, of the presence of the uh, military service as an option uh, for uh, members of the uh, Lumbee Nation 
and uh, the kind of importance that it played in uh, your growth and, and development. Sure, sure. And um, I sometimes get a little emotional when I talk about my my service to, to our country. Uh, the truth of the matter is it's other, other than being married and, and having children, it is absolutely the best decision I made in my life. Um, um, you know, I, I joined the Air Force, as I mentioned earlier, I, I participated in Air Force ROTC at UNC Pembroke, um, which was actually part of the ROTC unit at Fayetteville State University, where, where I eventually worked at when I first finished up at North Carolina Central. Um, I knew, as I mentioned earlier, as a young boy, younger boy, um, that I had a yearning for serving. Um, it's not a secret. I assume to most listeners that American Indians serve, serve this nation at a higher percentage than any other category of our citizens. Um, and I think that comes from the grounding um, that is um, in American Indian communities, whether you're Navajo, Cherokee, Lumbee, or Sioux. Um, in all those categories and across the nation, Indians serve, serve our serve our nation and serve our nation proudly. Their service hadn't always been recognized. Uh, it's no secret, sort of like this. You know, we're going to talk about Indigenous Day briefly. Um, the American Indian um, serve typically serve their communities and and have and continue to this day to serve our nation. You know, we, we Lumbee have lost, we've lost our citizens um, overseas. We lost citizens, you know, in the Middle East. Um, we have um, folks like myself who become service-connected service disabled um, service members who serve in combat zones as I did. And a lot of those injuries, much like many of those that serve in the military, you can't see the injuries of those folks still in spite of that step forward at an, at an unbelievable rate. So um, I, I knew I wanted to serve our country. I just had to find find how and, and with, 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 with which service branch. Um, my dad was in the army. I mentioned my two older brothers were in the, in, in the army as well. I, I, I kid with them that I, I got a little smarter than them and decided to join the Air Force. My younger brother, Caleb, served for 20 years. He, he, he retired as a lieutenant colonel. And I'm proud to say my oldest son now, um, Forrest, Jonathan Forrest Malcolm, is a member of the North Carolina Air National Guard. So it's, a, it's I don't want to say it's a, it's a tradition. And I didn't, as a boy, you know, we talked about my service. He was a child. He was born in Texas. So he didn't really understand or see his dad leaving five days after he was born to go over and fly missions into Bosnia for 120 days. He, he doesn't remember that. But somewhere along the way, obviously, he had the same inspiration uh, to want to give back to his country as well. And that's just not me. That's a lot of our American Indian people, not just Lumbee, but in American Indians in general. Um, well, let me, let me just, you know, this, uh, since you, you raise it, and this is the focus of our discussion, uh, 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 this evening. Uh, can you talk about the significance of uh, indigenous people, ind indigenous people's day, uh, as opposed to 
uh, the celebration of uh, Columbus Day, which is uh, normally uh, what uh, historically people have celebrated uh, during this uh, part of the uh, year. So Indigenous Peoples Day is a very important uh, change in uh, our celebratory history. I, I, I think it is. And, you know, there's, there's so many divisive issues in our country. And whether you're talking about renaming military bases or whether you're talking about statutes that have stood around this country. I mean, there's a statute that stands in front of the Robinson County Courthouse um, that I walk by every time I walk into courthouse um, where most people don't pay attention to the reason that's there. And obviously, um, most people, I guess, if you ask them, because the truth, the real truth, has not been taught in our schools for some time related, related to indigenous people. And I think that's a particular, uh, it's germane, obviously, when we talk about Columbus Day. I mean, I have friends that are educated that if you ask them, uh, is it true Christopher Columbus discovered the United States of America? And they would tell you, yes, absolutely. He landed somewhere on the East Coast. And of course we know that's not, that's not grounded in fact. Um, I've, I've, I've read about Columbus Day before discussion years ago about Indigenous Day. I understand and recognize and appreciate that it was a day um, really um, um, in recognition of the contributions related to the Italian Americans and other folks that came to this country um, and because they, in one version or another, were being persecuted, marginalized, used, abused, whatever you want to call it. And they were looking for something to hold on to and, 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 and to rally around. But despite of that, I believe, and I personally think, um, Indigenous Day is a more appropriate designation. Um, there, there's so much strife in this country, unfortunately, and when politics get involved in conversations, it just, it turns what should be reasonable conversations in soft tones and and with an with with a, a, a an agreement to disagree but not be offended, um, things are so charged now that and unfortunately in a lot of cities you can't have these kind of discussions. Um, where I work, Lumbee Tribe Holdings Inc. Um, we are a federal. We do work for the federal government. Uh, Lumbee Tribe Enterprises, which is one of our subsidiaries, um, is a very successful defense contractor. Um, we get told in our contracts with the federal government, which federally recognized days, our, our employees would take off. And it's, it's ironic we're, we're in the process of rewriting our handbook. And one of those days is Columbus Day. Well, guess what we're going to put? I mean, the day still, folks are still going to get it off, but we're not going to call it Columbus Day. We're going to call it in, Indigenous Day. So we're going to meet the requirements of our, federal, of our federal government with our contractual requirements. But we're just going to call it something a little, a little different. And that, that, Small step um, will catch some people off guard. Most of our employees are not American Indian. We have about 130 employees, uh, primarily based in Virginia and here in North Carolina. And, and they'll scratch their head about it. But we're going to take it as an opportunity to educate those folks and talk to them about what it means and talk to them about the existence of this company and why Lumbee Tribe Enterprises exist, which is to provide financial resources to our tribal members 
through exercising and seeking federal contracts with the, uh, with federal agency partners. And so that's a small example. I don't know, Professor Joyner, if I've really you know, uh, answered your question, but the truth of the matter is we need to talk about the history of this country. We need to talk about the difficult things like I brought up two weeks ago when I was welcomed and asked to join in a conversation about renaming how my name became part of the invite list, I don't know. But a few weeks ago, I was invited to be part of a discussion um, where Fort Bragg was, the, the leaders of Fort Bragg were going through their process of soliciting public feedback about the renaming of that military installation. And in that discussion, there were passionate people that were passionate that the name needed to stay Bragg. But their justification they were offering is because they didn't want to have to change name sign. They didn't want to have to change the streets, the street signs. They don't have to spend money updating maps that had been printed or updating uh, return addresses on envelopes. And I, with all due respect, I said, I understand everybody's passionate about that. I know people want to talk about finances, but the truth of the matter is our federal government, in that case, Congress has said, this base is going to be renamed. And we've put in a process in place to, to solicit feedback. In that meeting was Chairman Harvey Goblin. They went around the room and asked folks. Um, one of the names was they wanted to keep the name Bragg, but named it after, named that after another Bragg from Wisconsin, who, based on my reading, had no connection with North Carolina. And other people had other suggestions, great suggestions. But then Chairman Goblin spoke. And he spoke passionately. And I followed his comments by saying, because he, recommend, he recommended that the, the, the organization consider the name Croatoan. And no one in the room knew what that meant. Never really, really relates to a group of American Indians that are long, you know, gone from the coast. And but what I said to the group is if we really want to stir a conversation. Rename this base that. And it, every Sunday morning, if your family sits down to speak after you give grace, your young kids will ask, what in the world does that mean, daddy or mama? And then they can talk about the real history of this country, which is about the American Indian, the indigenous people here being conquered. And that's what it's about, which, of course, I could start a whole conversation about the legal Issues related to the trilogy of Supreme Court cases, which, 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 you know, decided that it was legal to take the indigenous people's lands. Um, sometimes, um, not sometimes, I don't know that I could pick one out of 25 people and ask them to explain how today the property that you own and I own is deeded to them. Because the indigenous people, as you as you all know, generations ago, didn't deed property. They moved as they sought food, shelter, and water. So that's really not an answer to your indigenous day question. But I think it, what it's really about is bringing stuff to the forefront that needs to be discussed. And more importantly, needs to be recognized and needs to be taught to our children and perhaps taught to a lot of the adults that are perhaps listening to this conversation this evening. And we're going to loop in Joshua Richardson, who is um, an attorney at law at 
Buckley LLP law firm, another proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. Attorney Richardson, thank you for joining us as well. Can you share your background with us and um, include your tribal affiliation and the type of work that you do related to Native peoples? Absolutely. Thank you all for having me today. It's a pleasure to be able to join in and speak with you and just to be able to be among great people and our listeners as well. And, and so my story is one that is very similar to a lot of indigenous people coming from a very small rural area where my tribe is located. And I am a proud citizen of the Halawasaponi Indian tribe, which is located primarily in Halifax and Warren County but we are in neighboring counties as well. However, that is primarily where we're located and where our tribal government, our school and our church is located is in that area. And I grew up there in a small town, always thinking like many people that I wanted to get away and go to the big city. And that's where everything that I wanted would be. All my dreams would come true, but you quickly find out that while there's many things in the city and while the things you pursue for resources may be there, you realize that there's always going to be challenges no matter where you go. <laughs> so that was a quick realization for me when I left home and the nest of people that were, as they say, it takes a village where it takes a tribe that were around me and encouraging me. And I did take their voices with me and their words of encouragement when I went to undergrad at North Carolina State University. And I used that to continue to fuel my passion to be able to come back at some point and help and assist with the things that were needed, but I always wondered, where do I fit in? How can I actually help aside from the normal things that you do for your family? And eventually my mom talked to me and my father mentioned to me, you always say you want to be a lawyer, you want to do law, why don't you just do that? And I kept thinking, well, I've wasted so many years doing other things to help that I just don't know if I feel like I'm, yeah, I can go back to law school. So I ended up going to law school at the age of 29 which I know that is not an age that some people would consider older, but it felt like it to me as a change and shift of going from things I was doing related to banking and then being at home for things such as cultural class and also going to our tribal meetings at which I would provide some context for different things that were needed. But I just felt like there was more that I was meant to do and wanted to do. So eventually I bit <laughs> took the, the part of saying, you know, I'll move forward and just fight that apple that my parents kept saying and, and applied to law school. And it was no question to me that North Carolina Central School of Law would be the place I wanted to be, given the rich history and the fact that the first Native American attorney did graduate from North Carolina Central School of Law in North Carolina. And it was important to me to, to just continue that legacy and learn all I could. And in true service, the way things do in legal eagle fashion, I learned a lot of things and grew a lot of relationships and reactivated NALSA as you, the Native American Law Student Association. And we were very active having powwows and getting my community involved and showing my hometown and my fellow tribal citizens that I went to law school to come back and help. And so after I went to law school, I was actually appointed by my tribal council unanimously to be the first ever legal counsel to represent our tribe. And it was a big undertaking, but I was ready to help on a pro bono basis because I do work full time for a firm that does approve for me to do the pro bono work that I do for the tribe. 
And so I was excited and I never realized <laughs> what I was taking on at first that it was many facets because it is in fact like being an in-house council person even though originally I planned to only assist in the capacity of our federal acknowledgement, it expanded. And so I enjoy it. It is one of the most fulfilling things that I can say that as a, a little boy and as I grew up to finally say, what is my purpose? What can I help with? This is what I feel my purpose is, helping my people at my tribe and other tribes to realize that while we're indigenous people and we've been through a lot, we can continue to work together and do the things that we need to do to continue to move forward. So the work that I do in that regard is really important to me, and I continue to do it, and was excited to be a part of this today to show that you, whatever you want to do, don't let fear stop you, because fear is what also pushed us away from a lot of things that Joshua Malcolm has mentioned related to the things that we have lost that were taken from us, intimidation, fear, false promises, and things that just were not in our favor that we thought at different times that we may have been able to fight back and, and get for ourselves. But at the end of the day, now there's a lot of legal things that come up, but there's also a lot of other issues that are just misunderstandings that we have to speak up for. So I'm happy to be a voice for not only my tribe, but other indigenous people who need that voice and support to be able to get the things that they need as far as resources and also a seat at the table in places that we commonly do not have a space to be able to speak up for our people. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we're talking this hour with attorney Joshua Malcolm, president and CEO of Lumbee Tribe Holdings Incorporated and attorney Joshua Richardson, attorney at the law firm of Buckley LLP. And we're talking this hour about issues related to indigenous people, specifically here in North Carolina. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. The month of November is National Native American Heritage Month. This month is to celebrate the history, culture, and traditions of the Native American people. This month allows for the spread of awareness and education around the challenges of the Native American people. Native Americans have historically been evicted from their ancestral lands, denied the opportunity to express their culture, suffered physical attacks, and been treated as second-class citizens. Native American Heritage Month has evolved from beginnings as its week-long celebration in 1986 to the month we acknowledge today. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorneys, uh, Joshua Malcolm, who is president and CEO of the Lumbee Tribe Holding Incorporated and attorney Joshua Richardson, attorney at law at the Buckley LLP law firm. And we have been talking this hour about the importance of Indigenous Peoples Day, about the issues related to Native peoples here in North Carolina. 
And I wanted to, um, Joshua Richardson, let's let's start with you as we come back. Can you talk about some of the, the issues that are facing Native communities throughout North Carolina? So for example, poverty issues, education, health, um, wh- what are the pressing issues that not just the Native communities need to be mindful of, but all citizens and people in North Carolina? Absolutely. So there are very a lot of issues and, and variant forms that I think face the different tribes that are located in the state of North Carolina. And as we mentioned previously earlier, they're in rural communities where there are issues where there are going to be unique issues stemming from that to begin with, where there is a lack of resources available, a lack of funding for a lot of things that are needed. It may be available, but it's not necessarily pinpointed to those specific areas where a lot of the tribes reside at times. It's specifically speaking for my tribe in general, we are in Halifax and Warren County, and those counties have fluctuated in the poverty level as far as being the counties that have been labeled at different times as one or two of the lowest counties as far as the poverty level is concerned, poorest and not getting the resources that are needed. And I know growing up, there was times where we had outdated textbooks. And I asked if this was an issue recently when I have visited our charter school, as well as other schools in the area, just to see if these things still arise. And they arrive in a different way. Of course, we're in this technology era, which we all embrace in a lot of ways. But there's an issue where I am from for high-speed internet. So my parents, for example, still have dial-up. So imagine that for a lot of those that are in this area, there recently was introductions by the governor of North Carolina and others in legislature about a movement to have more of resources and monetary items that will be allocated to expand high-speed internet and access to that. Because there was the pandemic that we are all still experiencing where in fact, a lot of homeschooling happened that did not happen in rural communities as much before because a lot of the community efforts to teach and learn were in fact in person. So that lack of high-speed internet access has been a very big challenge. It has created a barrier in a lot of ways where you can't log on to meetings virtually at times for students to get there to get the information they need but also to be able to communicate regularly and have that in-person interaction. So that created a double-fold challenge that already existed from the lack of high-speed internet, even from when I was growing up, that now was an even more heightened issue with the COVID-19 pandemic. There also are the issues where the lack of funding in different areas based on the poverty level and other things don't have the healthcare resources or have the money and infrastructure to build the things that are needed for healthcare resources. And for example, where I am from in Hollister, North Carolina, where my tribe is located, we do have a clinic, but a lot of the items that are needed for your higher level medical care, you will have to travel at least 45 minutes to the nearest hospital. And even then, it is not your Duke University or higher level schools where they do a lot of research for diseases that may be unique to a certain population, especially indigenous populations who sometimes are not counted in when these research studies are done to actually take a look at what is unique to what's being faced. Sure, there are studies that occur, but 
as far as the overlap in the issues, sometimes indigenous people are just grouped in to the larger group of what is uh, considered minorities, not realizing that there are some unique things such as alcoholism and other issues related to like breathing and like lung disease and other issues as well, heart disease and issues of that nature. Mental health is a major issue as well that are present in indigenous communities. And I think that you cannot create a one size fits all issue for this. You have to give the resources that need to be allocated for that. So I believe those things are very prevalent in indigenous communities, especially speaking for my tribe that we are seeking federal acknowledgement and other items as well from grants and resources and building more infrastructure to hopefully not only be able to put in place that high-speed internet that we need, but to also build things that expand our mental health resources, our other resources we need, such as hospitals, and also to fix the issues where we don't have adequate education resources because of the poverty issues and lack of resources and funding. Let me, uh, you know, just kind of piggyback on that and just ask you, uh, the both of you, to talk about the, uh, the distinctions uh, and the differences uh, with respect to available resources uh, for indigenous uh, nations uh, that are federally recognized as opposed to those that are uh, not federally recognized and are state uh, recognized. So why don't we start with uh, Attorney Malcolm uh, with that? Sure. Um, that's, that's, that's very ironic you asked ask about the resources made available to federally recognized tribes. I mentioned earlier, I'm, I've, I've been fortunate and have been vested with the awesome responsibility of running the for-profit arm of the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina. So we're out in the federal marketplace today, two months from now, six months back, competing with other federally, competing with federally recognized for-profit businesses just like us. The biggest business challenge we have is their for-profit arms, their profits are not taxed because most of those are organized under what's referred to as the Indian Reorganization Act, Section 17. So they're formed under in they're formed under the special section or area of law under federal law. Lumbee Tribe Enterprises, Lumbee IT Solutions, Lumbee 56 Construction which are our three subsidiaries of LTH, we're all formed under North Carolina corporate law. We're just like Irv Joyner LLC law, attorney at law. Um, and because of that, we pay taxes, we pay federal taxes and state taxes, just like any other business in North Carolina. So right up front, our tribally owned for-profit company here that's owned by the Lumbee people, when we compete against Chickasaw Ho-Chunk, we're starting about 28% down after we pay those taxes. So that's just one example of a distinction because my people are not fully federally recognized. And I wanna be clear, the fully word is purposeful. We believe and I believe that our people have been recognized by our federal government since 1956 during the termination period. The Lumbee Recognition Act said, we recognize you as a people, but we're not giving you any of the benefits that go along with being recognized as an Indian people. That same issue 
is affecting my good friend Josh Richardson on this call, is and it's affecting the other state recognized tribes in this nation. Our acknowledgement process in our federal government is broken. The way our Lumbee, the way the Lumbee have been treated, in my opinion, my professional opinion, is broken and it's not by accident. It's purposeful. My people have been requesting over a century for our government to recognize us, but we didn't feel, we didn't sit back. And so going to your earlier question, my people started the only four-year institution university in this nation founded by American Indians for American Indians in 1887, which is now UNC Pembroke. And that was started because our people didn't feel comfortable or were not welcome into the, obviously, to the white schools or the black schools. But we didn't sit on our hands. Our forefathers just knew and recognized then that education was the pathway to escape poverty and the social ills. And we've made a lot of headway down our way, but we've got a long way to go. So I would say the biggest challenge facing us is education. It's funny, Josh Richardson said a few minutes ago, he purposely mentioned Halifax County. I'm sure there's a good number of people on this call that have heard of the Leandro lawsuit. That's been going on for over 25 years. There were originally five counties that brought that lawsuit. Isn't it ironic that four of the five counties, three of the counties are in the Lumbee Tribe Territory, Hope, Cumberland, Robinson. You just heard Josh Richardson say Halifax. Four of the five counties are where Indian tribe, Indian people are. 25 plus years later, that case is still ongoing, isn't on the front line of headline of newspapers across our state today because the courts, this is not opinion, this is not Joshua Malcolm or Josh Richardson giving their opinion. Our courts, including our North Carolina Supreme Court, has told our state leaders you are not adequately funding the schools in these rural areas and other areas to allow these kids to get the education and the opportunities they need to be successful. And that's the second prong. To me, it's education and it's economic opportunities. And in our case here, that's another example where we're not sitting on our hands. A decade ago, my people, the tribal council started Lumbee Tribe Holdings. And we are seeking those business opportunities with our federal government. We are not waiting for a handout from our government. We're putting our knowledge and our subject matter expertise to work so we can earn profits and deliver those. And I would encourage, I think that's more what more, that's an example of what our Indian people across the state hopefully would do. And we hope to partner with other tribes to help them get into the 8A program um, um, in the near future if they want to pursue that opportunity as well. It is a quite distinction. Our people, whether you're whether you're talking about the Saponi people, whether you're talking about you know other people across the, the the state, if you're not a part of a federally recognized tribe, you're not getting access to Indian health services. You're not getting access to BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, money related to educational scholarships, and that is a clear disadvantage. And I want to I want to be clear for the listeners. This is not an enti- these are not entitlement programs. The relationship between the state of North Carolina 
and the state-recognized tribes is a sovereign-to-sovereign relationship. It's the same thing when you hear on national news talking about the United States and China disagreeing over land in the middle of the Pacific. We are a sovereign people. And our state, in my opinion, and its leaders should treat us as such and treat us respectfully as such. And there's a long way to go in a lot of those areas, um, in, in my opinion. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little passionate. That's that's what I truly believe. And that's just not my opinion. That's the opinion of, of our tribal members as well. Joshua Richardson, did you have anything you wanted to add about the, the need for both state and federal recognition? Absolutely. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about state recognized tribes and federally recognized tribes. And we can't leave out the fact that there are tribes that are disenfranchised that are not recognized on either level, but that doesn't change that they are in fact indigenous people that are seeking recognition because there are petitions that do come before the state regularly and federal government regularly to seek those levels of acknowledgement and recognition to be recognized as tribes. But I do want to be clear that it is an issue that Joshua Malcolm mentioned related to the fact that not only do we not have access to the resources, but we also have this issue where there's often a push for fairly recognized tribes in some ways at times to not necessarily want to have to support the state recognized tribes because of the federal government at times mentioning the divide in the resources. So it's, you know, all hands in the pot. The more people that are getting what is needed in resources, the less that's going to be able to be available for each individual tribe and those who need it. So it is an ongoing battle in a lot of ways because our people have been disenfranchised in many ways throughout the, the centuries and years that have passed. And where we want to work together to help in a lot of ways, sometimes there is that push to look out for your own tribe in a lot of ways, but it's not necessarily in a sense of trying to harm another tribe or push them to the side. But there comes this issue where, because that is where people in different tribes were at times separated and put in their different places, wherever that may be, and spread across what was our land, that that's the irony of the fact that the land was is taken back so long ago by the own form, and I say this in air quotes, uh, legally, based on the trilogy of cases and things that allowed that to happen. But there's so many other times that when things were said to be set right and tried to go in the right direction, or so it seemed, it still did not appear that things were being done in the best interest of Indigenous people and all the tribal nations who needed these resources. So I just wanted to stress the fact that it, it does sometimes have that pressure on different tribes to have to pursue the resources that are needed in the sense of being almost pit against one another. But that is not what we want. We, of course, want to work together to achieve the things and gain back the things that we have lost and hopefully restore the things we need. And I think that's why it's important for people like Joshua Malcolm, myself, and so many other advocates who speak up and help our tribes, because I'm only the third attorney in my tribe. You can imagine, I know the Lumbee Nation has quite a few more attorneys in their tribe than we have in ours. So it is a tougher deal with some tribes who have none. 
So imagine from a legal perspective and all the other business perspectives of where you need that education that's not being adequately funded and given to be able to fight back and get the things we need as a true advocate. So I just wanted to stress how important it is and how passionate I am, and I'm sure Joshua Malcolm and so many others are about fighting to gain the resources that we need. So we are moving into the election season. And uh, Attorney Malcolm, if you could just talk a little bit, we've got a few minutes left, but talk a little bit about the importance. It's important for everyone to exercise their right to vote. It's something that we talk about a lot on this show. Can you just share your thoughts on the importance of Indigenous people and our Native communities exercising fully and robustly the right to vote as well? Absolutely. Um, And this is not a partisan discussion. Um, You know, we could have two different discussions here. We could we could talk about efforts to protect the ballot box. We could talk about efforts to that have been put in place by some decisions or laws that have thwarted equal access to the ballot box. But what I would prefer to talk about is the importance of indigenous people standing up and being heard. And when they stand up and, and, and say, you better come pay attention to me, that's when the politicians, the folks that are passing the budgets, start putting their ideas and their goals to front of top of head and incorporating those things as they're passing laws that affect all of us. And, and, and then, you know, I was interviewed about God, that's been over a year ago. ABC News came to Robson County they, uh, because they had been tracking what was happening in southeastern North Carolina, where people, a county that's 80, 82, 83% registered Democrat, was not voting reflective of that. Um, and that's part of the reason Donald Trump, the first sitting president in our nation's history, came to Robson County less than two months before his election. Um, and held a rally. I mean, imagine that. A sitting president comes to the fairgrounds of Robinson County to to <laughs> seek support primarily from the American Indian. And he came. Um, I'm, you know, the characterization of what he came and said is that's for, for you to decide. But what happened is all of a sudden the nation's eyes were upon us here. And after that election was over, um, there's been a lot of articles written about Lumbee, how they voted. There's also been a lot of art, uh, articles written about how the Navajo voted. So what I would suggest is that indigenous people need to step up, get registered, get their family members registered, get your car that can hold a, a family of six or your van, ask your church if you can borrow the van, call your neighbor and go vote and be heard because the politicians are looking at voter turnout. They're looking at what subset of that community is turning out. And unless you, 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 you get into politics, in my opinion, one or two ways, you either make campaign, campaign contributions or you get people to the polls. It's one or the other. Now here in Robinson County, ironically, my people are doing both. And I think that's part of the reason, in some respects, not all, certainly, in some respects, the Lumbee now have influence 
um, related to political decisions uh, that are taking place, not only here, um, but but in our nation's capital. Uh, I, I think that's partly partly the reason the Lumbee Recognition Act passed unanimously during the most recent during the most recent congressional um, House sitting, and I, I, I'm proud to say and remind everybody that view was sponsored by an NCCU graduate, or my good friend, and I think a, a distinguished elder, uh, G.K. Butterfield. Um, he sponsored Lumbee Rec- the Lumbee Recognition Act. Um, and so uh, that's what I think people need to do. Whether you're a Democrat, unaffiliated, or Republican, you need to go vote. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there as we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Attorney Joshua Malcolm, President and CEO of Lumbee Tribe Holdings Incorporated, and Attorney Joshua Richardson, Attorney at Law at the law firm of Buckley LLP. And of course, we'd like to thank you for spending your Sunday evening listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss the show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.